who's ready to get exposed. And um, actually, this this is sort of like a, a paradox why I say that, and you'll know in a minute. But it's Sober Exposure with me, Jennifer Wilde. Welcome to the show, Sober Exposure. And so my guest today, um, she was actually a former co-worker. Uh, she's, she's the soulful stripper. Oh my God. I'm so kidding. <laughs> you can laugh. I mean, that would be frightening, but okay. So anyway, I, I want to introduce you a little early. It's Shells Cora and she goes by the soulful stripper. And that's what, that's what caught my attention. Did I pronounce your last name wrong? The no, producer's saying I did. Right. Okay. Yeah. You got okay. It. Yeah. The producer's yelling at me. So anyway, <laughs> so, so she, caught my attention on Instagram because it was like, you have this gorgeous, beautiful woman. All right. <laughs> uh, I mean, listen, I'm not, I'm like, not nice. It's true. And <laughs> you're, you know, people like to stereotype the um, particular type of woman that likes to go on poles and dance and stuff like that. And then here she is talking all this amazing stuff about recovery and spirituality. And I mean, it just really, it, it, it caught my attention and I was so taken by everything that you were talking about and all your posts and everything. And then I spoke to you on the phone. I was like, I cannot have this girl on the show because she is so smart. Like I will not be able to keep up with her. She's like freaking brilliant. So uh, let's welcome the soulful stripper. Woo, yes. Chels Cora. And then yes. uh I just, okay, so I just want to start the show off with just a funny little story, and then we'll get down to the serious business here. So Let's do it. All right. So we've, we've all um, talked about, obviously, our addiction, our alcoholism, and where we came from. And I just have a little bit of experience in the strip club as far as the employment side. I have a lot as far as being a customer. I've been kicked out of a lot, you know, like, <laughs> usually I go in there with guys and, and I end up just making best friends with all the, all the girls and we end up in the backs, you know, snorting lines and shit. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, early on before my radio career, um, I was in broadcasting school and I wanted to make a buck and they had this like amateur um, amateur night at the strip club. And this was in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And in Minneapolis, you got to go all the way down. Okay. And this was in the late eighties. So there was no, uh, thong. This was, this was all the way down. If you know what I mean? So, uh, it's amateur night. And I mean, I'm thinking I look real hot and everything. I tell the DJ what song to play. It's in the metal days. They play a really cool Metallica song. I get up there. I'm dancing around. I've got this hot little, uh, you know, hot little number I'm wearing. And, you know, the guys are ooing and eyeing and everything. And then it's like time to take the clothes off or the bikini top off. So I was okay. I took the bikini top off. And I start dancing around, but this is, this is all the way bare bottom. Okay. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the song <laughs> keeps going and the guys are like, you know, wanting, they're like, when's, when's this bitch going to take this shit off? You know? And I just like, was like, Oh, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't take off my bottoms and I got booed off the stage. Mm. Ah, hence the end of my stripping career. So yeah, <laughs> I just wanted to open up with that. Um, well, good for you. You, you maintained your boundaries. I mean, that's more than a lot of people can say. <laughs> oh my God. Only your figures you would bring, you would make it about boundaries. I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, all right. This is, this is, um, this is what I have. What, what I have as far as I want to see if, if our listeners can guess what 
pretty much we're going to be touching upon after you tell a little bit about yourself and your story. Um, it's actually, we started off all, you know, fun and games, but this is actually a really, really serious um, subject that needs to be addressed that most addicts have been touched with. And a lot of people that aren't addicts that are touched with it act out in other ways. And it's the most avoided, ignored, belittled, denied, misunderstood, and unarrated cause of human suffering. Mm. And what, 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 what are we, um, what are we going to be talking about? Yeah. So we are talking about trauma, emotional trauma. And yeah, I can explain a little bit. Trauma is basically a unprocessed emotion or experience. And all of our childhoods are filled with them because these are things that we might look at as an adult and not think of as a very big deal to some of the more explicitly recognized traumas like abuse or neglect. And in our adult lives, all of our negative behavioral and mindset patterns like addiction, alcoholism, procrastination, always being attracted to an emotionally unavailable person, anxiety, depression, and basically anything else all stems from our childhood trauma. So like our trauma is the root of all of our suffering in our adulthood. And we just don't realize this. Mm -hmm. Yes. So it's sort of almost like we, we pass on throughout our, not pass on, but we, we, hold in our lives the emotions what we don't process it just continues throughout mm-hmm. our life and it's like underneath and it just comes out in in very un- unexpressed emotions they're they're always going to come forth in ugly ways yes. later on yeah. yeah exactly okay so tell us a little bit um about like I'm sorry, I got to just be a smart ass. My biggest trauma was when I was up on that stage and got booed off and I didn't win the prize money, but um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. I promise I'm not going to crack anymore. The rest of this is going to be serious. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about where you came from, um, what happened and what it's like today. Absolutely. So where I came from, I was born in Fenton, Michigan, which is like a suburb of Flint, Michigan. It's like 15 minutes away. And the family that I was born into, my parents were, they both grew up pretty poor, very working class, but my dad ended up making a lot of money in his career. So by the time I was born as the youngest child, there was more than enough to go around. And my parents really tried to give their kids everything that they never had. So for that reason, I had everything I needed. I was well taken care of and perhaps even a bit spoiled. But on an emotional level, since we do live in a society that doesn't really recognize how to handle emotions, I would say that I did not have those same resources. Um, My dad could be described as a functioning alcoholic, even though he was really successful in his career. He did drink a lot during his downtime or when he was at home. And my mom could probably be classified through the eyes of 12-step recovery as an untreated Al-Anon or codependent because she was the type of person who really didn't need alcohol or want it too much. But she will drink just as much as my dad does just so that he doesn't have to drink alone type of thing. And I was the youngest of four kids. So my sister who was closest in age to me was seven years older than me. And then my next sister was 12 years. And then my brother is 17 years older than me. So So these are more like aunts and uncles. Pretty much. 
yeah, yeah. So growing up in the household, I didn't really feel like I had anyone I could relate to. And I would kind of describe it as a lonely time throughout um, my childhood, especially because when I was in third grade, I was homeschooled. My parents took me out of school to be homeschooled for fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. And when I asked them now why they did this, they told me that it was because they saw me having a really hard time being able to relate to other kids in school and they thought homeschooling would be better. But it ended up being sort of counterproductive because I didn't get any social interaction with other kids my age. I mean, I had a, like one or two friends from who I had met in school and they were like the only two people that I saw. So when they decided to put me back in public school in seventh grade, I had extreme social anxiety and I was not like the rest of the kids. I had been super sheltered. And that first day was pretty traumatic because I all of a sudden was being exposed to these things that I was never previously exposed to, like kids uh, drinking and doing drugs and talking about sex and also, I was a really big tomboy. I had my hair cut super short like a boy. I dressed like a boy. So it was like taking tomboy to the whole next level because everybody thought that I was a boy. Mm. And so that added to the sort of traumatic reintegration from not being in school to being in school. And that really set the tone for the rest of my public school experience. I just didn't have very many friends and I didn't belong. And by the time I was 12, I just hated life and I was cutting myself and I was suicidal. I got diagnosed with depression and was institutionalized. Um, it was a pretty crazy time. But when I was 14, I started drinking. I actually had my first taste of alcohol when I was 12 because my my brother who age-wise could be more like my uncle he gave me a sip of his beer I remember thinking it tasted so bad but I wanted to drink it anyway because his approval mattered to me I was yeah. constantly seeking the approval of others so when I was 14 my sister was the one who actually gave me alcohol this time and I loved it it was like all the social anxiety and the worry just melted away I could have fun I could be free that sort of thing and I continued to drink whenever I could. I also started smoking weed at this time. The first two years of high school are super hazy. I don't have much memory <laughs> because I was yeah. literally getting high every day. Um, and then when I was 16, I was in this really bad accident where I broke four bones and severed my radial nerve in my left arm. And I was hospitalized. I had to go into surgery immediately. And that's when I got introduced to morphine. And they prescribed me Oxycontin and Vicodin and all this stuff. And my dependency on op opioids began that year. And I continued being addicted to those for a few more years, I actually moved out of my parents' home right after graduating high school when I was 17. I had an early birthday and I moved to a town that's 45 minutes away. I started taking classes at a local community college there and I started working at a restaurant where I met my boyfriend who was 35. So I was 17 dating this guy who was 35. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can I, I, I now you, you don't ahead. have anything to do with this guy, do you? Uh, where, where uh, not anymore. Yeah. Can I just say that's really gross? <laughs> you can definitely say that. I'm yeah. sorry. That's gross. Yeah. I, I can't say that I didn't date a 35 year old when I was 17, but now I think <laughs> about that 35 year old and I'm like, you're gross. All right. I'm sorry. Go on. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely some, some trauma, right. On both sides <laughs> <laughs> of that equation. Mommy and daddy issues. All the way. Yeah. All the way. 
yeah, he actually lived with his dad and his cats. Um, his dad was also a really bad alcoholic. But in this relationship, this guy provided me with the things that I wanted, which are Vicodin and Percocets and Xanax. Like he was a really big user himself. And being in this relationship, I got to maintain my addiction. So it worked out for about a year. And then I visited my sister who was closest in age to me, the one that's seven years older in Austin, Texas. She was living in Texas, going to grad school. And I went to visit her and I loved it. I had so much fun. So I moved there. It wasn't as much fun as when I visited. You know, when you move to a new place, it can be really isolating and uncomfortable. And I still had this extreme amount of social anxiety. So my ex-boyfriend, the 35-year-old, was actually sending me pills in the mail still, uh, which helped me to cope. What a guy. I know. (laughs) I know. And then... I got a job at an Applebee's as a waitress and I met somebody else, another guy who I was about, I was almost 19 and he was 24. So a little bit closer in age, a lot closer. And he was a super alcoholic. Like he loved to drink, but through my young, naive eyes. All I saw was fun and adventure. This guy was exciting. And he really like took me out of my shell. Whenever I would hang out with him, he would take me around town and introduce me to all these new people. And we would drink a lot. And this is where I kind of started phasing out the opioids and just drinking all the time. And we ended up entering a romantic relationship, not because I really wanted to, but because he had a really big crush on me. And it was like, if I didn't become romantic with him, I was going to lose access to this wonderful, adventurous lifestyle that I had found myself in. So Mm -hmm. I ended up getting started to date him. And I did develop feelings for him not long after that. But also not long after that, like a few months in our relationship went from really fun and exciting to just super tumultuous and painful. Um, I actually got pregnant with this guy when I was 19 still, and I decided not to keep the, not to go through with the pregnancy. And he did not support that decision. He basically just withdrew any type of support he could have ever given me. He didn't help me to pay for the abortion. He wasn't there emotionally or anything. But then after a few weeks, he, he weaseled his way back into my life and started telling me how he was going to AA and how he was bettering his life and really making a strong case for me to get back with him, which I did. I didn't know anything about the suggestion of the program of being single for a year, but (laughs) whatever he was talking about sounded good. So we got back together and I actually started going to Al-Anon at the time, the support group for loved ones of alcoholics. And it was so amazing, the support that I got in that group. And most, more importantly than that, it was my first taste of recovery. And that was really important. Neither of us stayed with those groups at the time. We didn't, we didn't work a program. We ended up moving to Houston, Texas, because I wanted to move there. I was really big into political activism at the time. And I had some friends there who were starting this project that I wanted to be a part of. And I was at the point, like the breaking point where I was like, look, either you can come or you can stay, but I'm going to go anyway. But he ended up coming and we lived there for like three years together. And it was 
one of the hardest times of my life because we just struggled so much. We struggled to get along with each other. We struggled financially. I was the sole breadwinner of our household. Sometimes I would work two jobs. And it was just because I believed him when he said he was trying to get a job. I believed him when he played the victim and said, my criminal record causes people to judge me or my skin color causes people to judge me. He was half white, half Panamanian and whatever, mm-hmm. whatever the, the excuse was, right. It's just, I believed I, that he had the best intentions and I stayed in that relationship, even though I did try to leave a few times because it was very verbally and sometimes physically abusive. But when I finally left, it was when both his parents and my parents came to Texas to visit us because we were actually talking about getting married. And it once again, like I didn't even want to get married at all, but he kept asking me like since the day we got together pretty much. And I just got so tired of hearing it that I gave in. I was like, yeah, let's get married. I I, got to tell you, just, I I have to interject because I so relate to that. I, uh, out of, just out of my people pleasing and codependency and not being able to say no yes. and lack of boundaries, I got married when I really didn't want to and ended up mm. um, being married for 17 years. It took me 17 wow. years to get out. And all due respect to my ex husband, I love him very much. He's a great person, but we just were not, you know, compatible. And I knew from day one. So I get that. I get that. Oh terrible place to be. Yes. Yeah, it is terrible. It has very serious implications when we're not able to listen to our own inner voice and set those boundaries. Um, But fortunately, my inner voice got super loud around the time that my parents were visiting. And I didn't have a very close relationship with them. I had been kind of distant from them through my addiction. But we were in the process of rebuilding a relationship. And we were all at this Astros baseball game, my parents and his parents and him and his brother and everything. And I just felt so much pressure that I cracked and I went to the bathroom and I just started bawling my eyes out. And my mom ended up coming in after me and she was like, what's wrong? Like what's going on? And I just told her like, I can't get married. I don't want to do this. And those were like the only words I could get out. And it was so hard to even say that, but I had to. And after the next couple of days, I started disclosing to my parents, the true nature of our relationship and how sometimes I feared for my safety. And they really, persuaded me to just take some space. They didn't say break up with him. They said, what if you just come back to Michigan with us and just take some space? And it was really kind of hard to get me to do that. I kept going back and forth um, because the reaction of my ex was so crazy. Like he, he felt like I was betraying him and all these different things. And you probably felt like you would be betraying him. And we put our, uh, the other's their feelings before our own feelings before right. recovery. It's like, oh, well, so what if if I'm dying inside as long as I'm not hurting him, even though he's beating me, mm-hmm. uh, I don't want to hurt him. So I'll stay. Yeah, absolutely. I relate. I relate. Yeah. Thank you for relating. That's a really important Mm -hmm. point that we do, because a lot of times statistically it takes a, a woman to leave like she'll try to leave an abusive relationship like seven or eight times before she finally does. Mm -hmm. And that was the case with me. I had tried several times to get out of it, but I always went back because it's like, yeah, you put their needs before yours and you believe them when they say they're going to be different. 
So I ended up going to Michigan. And when I got there, my dad gave me this really awesome book called Why Does He Do That? by Lundy Bancroft. It's written by this guy who has counseled abusive men for like two decades. And he started noticing certain behavioral patterns and dynamics within them that are recognizable. And it's it, it started to help me understand what was actually going on in my relationship. And after a few pages of those books, of reading that book, it was like I saw my ex on every page and I was able to release all of my attachment to that relationship because I saw it for what it was. So I'm really grateful for that moment and for the support of my family during that time because I was finally free from that relationship. And after a few months of living in Michigan, I decided to go back to Houston. He left, he left the apartment we shared and all of that. So I came back and I took it over and I started working at a restaurant and I was going to school, taking classes for a degree in Spanish. And after I I was really enjoying this newfound sense of freedom and independence, uh, living life on my own terms, I was still drinking a lot, but compared to him, I didn't think I had a problem. And I started thinking that a really great way to pay my bills and go to school would be to become a stripper because stripping is always something that had intrigued me. And I just knew that you could make a lot of money relatively quickly. So I ended up getting a job as a cocktail waitress at a strip club to kind of see what it was like. And after they about always a week, start, yeah, it always starts like that. I'll, I'll just be the waitress. And yeah. Before you know it, you're on the pole, baby. I know <laughs> the infamous entry point of being a waitress. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's what I did, and did, yeah, like a week it didn't take long. <laughs> yeah, of course. And yeah, but it was a lot harder than I thought because I imagined that I would just get on stage and everyone was going to give me money and it would be great, but that's not quite how it works. You do have to get on stage. And I never danced at a fully nude club, but wearing only a G string is incredibly vulnerable. I remember I was terrified my first night on stage. I almost fell. Thankfully I didn't. <laughs> um, but hey, I, you might, you might've gotten better tips if you did fall. They probably would have felt, felt so sorry for you. They'd be throwing hundred dollar bills at all oh, this poor amateur. Oh my God. That's true. I didn't even yeah. think about it like that. <laughs> manipulative alcoholic mind always thinking right of course yeah so I did make quite a few like I made quite a bit of money my first couple nights but I think that was beginner's luck I I do think people saw that it was my first night and whatever but as time went on I wasn't making as much money and I um you know it was hard because I realized I had to be a salesperson while I was at work. I had to be this fun, bubbly personality and I still had social anxiety. So what really helped me transition into this personality that I needed to be at work was alcohol. And dancers are basically encouraged to drink while you're at work. So it was like the perfect situation for me in that sense. And it escalated. Yeah. Flow with boys, drink, you know, get high, dance around. Come on. It sounds perfect to me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. In disease. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, But yeah, so I had to get used to being very vulnerable, like, you know, giving lap dances is a very vulnerable thing to do. And I had set some very strong boundaries for myself at the beginning, like things I would never do for money. And as I 
was working, those boundaries just began to fall by the wayside. And before I knew it, I was doing sex work. I was having sex for money, both in and outside of the club. And it was really a mess. Like I got myself in some pretty risky situations because I would make most of my judgment calls when I was already drinking, you know, already under the influence. And listen, every addict does some sort of exchange like that. I mean, I, my, my drug of choice is cocaine. So mm-hmm. maybe I didn't work in a club because I got booed off the stage, but you know, we've mm-hmm. all done that. But when, when you're sitting there and, and you're dancing for the guys inside, are you like, Oh, you disgusting pig. I hate you. <laughs> Were you thinking that in your head? I mean, what are you thinking? Or, or you, you create such a character. It's almost like you're an actress I, that you almost maybe pretend that you're someone else and make yourself almost like it's like a power thing. Like, yeah. Anyway. Yes. Yeah. So. It's true. Cause you're, you're the one that's in control. You're taking their money and you're setting the boundaries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, at this time I wasn't setting very many boundaries. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think for me it was both. It was like, sometimes I was really not feeling the customer who I was with and it felt really kind of nasty. And other times I would assume this other role, like we have different names as dancer. My name was Soleil. So Soleil was somebody who could do anything like this super confident uh, woman. It's like, what do they call it? It's like Beyonce had Sasha fierce. It's like yeah, a, alter ego, alter ego. That's who it was. Yeah. She uh-huh. was my alter ego. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, it went down, <laughs> spiraled down pretty quickly. And eventually I hit my bottom. I was on this trip to Las Vegas with a client who I had met at the strip club. And this type of arrangement is not very uncommon with women in the industry, but it was my first time doing something like this, going somewhere new with a client who I honestly, we had some rapport between us, but I didn't really know him that well. And I was very clear that I was there to fulfill this fantasy girlfriend role for him. And I got tired of that role after like day one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, but we were, we were supposed to be there for like a long weekend. So I, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I'd rather be poor in the alley anyway. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, it led to this breakdown where I was in yeah. one of the casino bathroom mirrors and I was just crying and I was just Uh like I didn't recognize myself in the mirror I was like who am I why did I come here I don't need to be here doing this and I it was like turned out to be this super dramatic scene where I announced my immediate departure from the trip and I took a red-eye flight back to Houston and the very next day I went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous Mm -hmm. and I shared and I said what was going on with me and I stayed sober from that day forward. And that was August 27th of 2018. So almost three years. Oh, yeah, girl. I love that. And I just, I love how um, you talked about, I could just relate. And I know every woman that, you know, has this disease and has been through what we've been through, had that look in the mirror moment. Like, who am I? Who Mm -hmm. am I? You know, and sometimes that is the most powerful bottom more than, the bottom of, you know, going to jail, getting arrested, sometimes just looking in the mirror and just being mm-hmm. like, holy crap, what, what, what have I done? Who am I? What am I doing? I don't, I don't need 
to do this. So right. I, I love that. Okay. Tell us what happened from there. Yeah, of course. So I got a sponsor pretty soon after I started working the steps and I started unraveling these layers of who I thought I was and started getting to the truth of who I am. I started developing a stronger relationship with myself, with a higher power and building a community of others who are also trying to build their life in better ways. People who treated me with this level of love and authenticity that I never got out there in those relationships that were facilitated by drinking and drugs. And it was a really beautiful thing. I started um, getting feedback of people whenever I would tell my story or whenever I would share, they would tell me that they thought I was a good speaker or they really thought my story story or what I had to say was inspiring. And that got me thinking that I could start my own podcast or I could get into public speaking. And this stuff came later, but I'm mentioning it because it's really important when we listen to the feedback that others are giving us to understand our own gifts and talents, because these are things that we often can't see in ourselves. And we need our higher power to speak through those other people to guide us towards our purpose, Um, which I didn't fully come into at that time, I took a break from dancing when I first got sober for like three months. And I actually wasn't planning on going back to the club, but eventually I needed to work again. I needed money. Um, I had some money saved up, but it ran out and all the jobs I was considering just didn't compare to the level of income that I would make as a dancer. So I ended up going back to work at the club as a sober dancer. And <sighs> it, it was tough at first, but it started to be kind of fun because I was in control. I was setting stronger boundaries. I stopped doing sex work and I started changing my mindset to realize that I can decide how much money I want to make. Like if I'm operating from the limiting belief that I need to be drinking or I need to be doing extras is what it's called sex work in order to make money, then it's like my entire shift is going to turn into a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm going to show up and I'm going to act from a place of low self-worth. Like these customers don't want to get dances from me because I'm not drinking. But if I flip the script and I say, people love sober strippers, people who come to the strip club, not because they want to drink, but because they want to interact with a beautiful divine feminine energy, you know, then I can come to it from a place of confidence and I can start making more money. And that's what happened. I started making a lot more money consistently, not doing half of the things I used to do when right. I was gee, drinking. Gee, I'm, I'm surprised the guys wouldn't want a slobbering drunk over, <laughs> you know, uh, somebody that, that can actually hold their head up and, and look sexy. Cause let me tell you something. If you're anything like me, after you've been drinking, you ain't sexy girl. Okay. <laughs> you can say that again. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay. So, I mean, that's really cool. It is. However, my question is, I mean, I, I got to, and I know that you did leave the club and I just got to ask, like, how could you lead really? I mean, I, I know you just explained where you came from a place of power, which is great, but with all that other negative energy, with all the other women and all the stuff around you. I mean, I know this is so cliche, people, places, and things, just the whole vibe and the energy of the strip club. Um, I'm just amazed that, that you were able to do that and God bless you for it. And God bless you for being able to capitalize off of that and and make your money and and stay strong and come in a place of being a goddess. Mm. Uh, But that's, that's pretty remarkable, really. 
Yeah, thank you. And it wasn't easy, you know, but I worked, I always worked a really strong program right from the beginning and spirituality just became super important to me. And I started, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. It's just like they say in the big book that you can, that's proof right there. Um, and I'm not a big book thumper at all. And I do get into other ways of recovery. And I want you to talk about this too, because I love it. And I'm so interested in the shamanism stuff. I don't even think I pronounced it right, but, um, in the big book, they do say that you can do anything. You can go anywhere as long as you're spiritually fit, you know? Yeah. And I guess my story is a testament to that because the desire to drink had been removed from me, the Mm -hmm. obsession, the craving. Um, and I started to see a lot of the situations I encountered at the strip club as opportunities for spiritual growth, because Mm -hmm. I recognized that every being is a soul. And so no matter where you are, whether you're at a strip club or you're at a church or you're at an AA meeting, there is an opportunity to be of service and to be a light in somebody's world. And I noticed that people were going to the strip club because they had some type of void in their life because they wanted to express a side of themselves that they don't normally get to express in everyday life. Our sensuality is something that's very stigmatized in our culture. And so in the strip club, it's almost like a haven for people who want to express that, among other things. Like it's also very addicting and very negative and very draining. And towards the end, I had to really get honest uh, with myself about that. I think for a long time, I coped with some of the very difficult things that I had to do at the strip club, just like being sober, being, um, this emotional container for guys to come and dump all their baggage on, which is kind of what they do. It's really difficult. And so in order to cope with that, I kind of, I glamorized it almost a little bit. And I told myself, this is a space of healing and, you know, I'm a light worker and all this stuff. And sometimes it felt true because sometimes I would have really awesome, positive experiences there. And I was able to help a lot of people, whether it's a client or a bartender or another girl, I could be a yeah. light for them, you know? Yeah. I was going to ask you about the mean girls. Cause I was watching uh, your Instagram and you were doing um, a vlog from backstage at the strip club. Hey, welcome to, <laughs> yeah, welcome to Tootsies, ladies and gentlemen. You know, and, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm an ex CJ by the way, but you know, so I was watching that and I was like, gosh, I wonder what like the, the friggin' girl that's just did like, you know, five, five rails of blow and she, you know, she's just a mess is, is thinking, or, you know, you had that social anxiety and the alcohol and drugs helped you. I mean, who cares about the other girls? You're not there to please them, but you are a people pleaser. All that went through my head. Like, what would I do? Like, I would be so concerned about like the other girls. Were you yeah. able to help them or did they look, or were they like, Oh my God, here she is. She's such a buzzkill. Okay. I'm going to tell you what. So in, There is a really big competitive culture in the strip club and it's very isolating and that affected me immensely, especially during my first couple of years of dancing. But when I went to the program of AA and I learned how to be vulnerable and share my experience, what I learned there is that we are all far more alike than we are different. And our own individual struggles are not that individual. Once we start sharing, we realize that everyone else goes through the same shit in one way or another. And so I applied that to the strip club and I realized these girls aren't being mean because they're just assholes. They're doing it because of trauma or they're doing it to protect 
protect themselves because everyone else is mean and you have to have this hard exterior to survive. And so I started being vulnerable and I said, Hey, you know, I started putting myself out there for other girls and sharing my own experiences in the club and talking about my alcoholism in the club. And I started making a lot more friends, or even if I didn't make a friend, I knew that I was making a difference in someone's life. Does that make sense? Oh my God. It totally makes sense. And then, um, when it, when, when the club closed down, all the girls got together and you guys all had a meeting. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Right. I wish, <laughs> but yeah, but I mean, it's like when you can break somebody down, um, when you just can get vulnerable and get real with somebody, uh, it, it's amazing what you can do, you know, instead of like yeah. looking at them as your enemy, you look at them like, <clears throat> uh, you know, she's just like me. You treat her like, like, like a little girl, like you would treat like, you know, maybe, um, just your inner child, like your little girl, you know, and then, mm-hmm. and then they calm down and then they see the vulnerability and then they can get vulnerable and learn from you. And that's so beautiful. It is. It's amazing. Really. Yeah, definitely. It was a really fulfilling way to be of service and to let my yeah. higher power work through me, you know? And you don't know, I mean, what kind of seed you planted with these girls right. and, you know, it could be, down the line that a couple of days they look in the mirror and they have their, uh, hate to quote Oprah, aha moment because of mm-hmm. you. So what a great feeling, you know, we were, the, the whole thing we wanted to do was get into, you know, trauma and what trauma is. I mean, yes, like for, for me, I never like, I know that there could be people listening and being like, well, I was never sexually abused. I never was beaten. I never had this. I never had that. So I've never had trauma. So the thing is that is so misunderstood about trauma is it doesn't mean you have to have that. Like everybody responds to different situations differently. Like this is the stupidest thing, but this was trauma I had when I was a little girl. I was a little girl and I was in kindergarten. I decided I hated school because my two best friends that lived on my street, I happen to know where they are today and they have like exceptional IQs. They're both genius level, but we were all in kindergarten together and there was a numbers book that was really boring. Okay. And it sucked and it was horrible. And, but then once you got through that book, you got to go to the fun book with the letter people that was all like colorful and fun. And I couldn't mm-hmm. get out of that stupid ass number book. Like I couldn't. And my friends are on the, they're, they're like finished with the letter people book and they're like laughing about the letter people book. Yeah. And I'm like still on page one of the math book. And so, I mean, later on in life, I did have harder traumas. However, that was my first trauma. Yeah. The way that I reacted to that, like my stomach, it was physical nightmares, flashbacks. Uh, yes. I mean, it, 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 trauma could be anything. Now it could have been somebody that maybe didn't grow up to be an addict and didn't have such, um, uh, emotional tendencies like I have or whatever, that that same thing happened to another child. They would have just blown it off and be like, ah, oh, big deal. So they're in the letter people. I don't care. You know, but because I was an, a sensitive person, an empath or whatever it may be, um, uh, ready, whatever, going to be an alcoholic, trying to use the right word. You could probably use it, but, um, that's how I reacted to something so little. Yeah. Making sense. Absolutely. And I would say that wasn't little at all. And it makes total sense that you felt that way that, you know, you, you felt less than the other kids, the other kids were making fun of you and that will leave a huge imprint on your childhood psyche and have reverberating effects throughout your adulthood. So, and I would argue that that was not your first trauma because anytime that we have an emotion 
that gets dismissed by one of our caretakers, maybe because they just don't know better because no one taught them how to deal with emotions. That constitutes a trauma. I'll give another example of what people might consider not a big deal, right? Let's say that you are a child and you're watching your sibling opening up all their presents on their birthday and they're getting all the attention and you're over here and you just don't understand why. Maybe you're two or three years old and you don't even have the words to talk about how you feel, but your parent or your caretaker just says, it's not your birthday don't worry about it. You'll get presents on your birthday. That seems like not a big deal at all, but the child has this emotional reaction that's not getting processed. And so mm-hmm. it, it, what happens is it turns into a trauma and it stays with them, even if they're not consciously aware of it. And it has some effects on their self-worth and deservingness. And it shows up in some way, shape or form in their adult life with their relationships or something else. Okay, so whether it's opening a gift or being molested or whether it's big or small, so we can go to therapy. And I've gone to therapy left and right about trauma and doing the inner child work and like, Mm -hmm. let's talk about it. Or, you know, even just I did some hypnosis and I actually have a whole podcast about hypnosis. Um, Nice. Yeah, but my, my question is, I know that you have resolved your trauma in a not so conventional way. And we, we've already talked about how the 12 steps have helped you. Um, tell, I want to, I want to know more about the stuff that you do. Um, I, I, I hear a lot and I, this is something I really don't know a lot about. And I feel like I'm such a know-it-all and that I know everything. I've heard the word shadow work a lot. And I heard you talk mm-hmm. about shadow work and you do a lot of different things to resolve yes. the trauma that a lot of yeah. people don't know of. So can you like tell us more about the just like paying a therapist like $150 to talk about what happened when you were five? Because I mean, that doesn't really always resolve the inside. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I would love to talk about this. So okay. basically all of our traumas reside in our subconscious. But when we attempt to alleviate negative behavioral and mindset patterns in our adult life, like addiction or toxic relationship patterns, we go to therapy, like you said, and we talk about it. Or we go to 12-step programs and we exchange really unhealthy coping mechanisms for healthier ones. And while these things can be beneficial tools, ultimately they are limited because we're only addressing the symptoms of our trauma at the root, at the surface level. It's like putting a Band-Aid on it instead of going to the root, which is in the subconscious. So we try to address them at the conscious surface level rather than going to the root subconscious level and actually healing it once and for all. So I was the same way. After I got into recovery, it helped me a lot. It changed my life. But eventually I was back in those same cyclical patterns of despair. Like every month I was having an existential crisis or an emotional breakdown. And I just couldn't figure out what was wrong with me, why I was so messed up. My feelings felt too big for me, no matter what I did. And I would go to therapy or I even sought out the help of life coaching because I thought that would get me on track to where I want to be in life. But neither of those things really worked because, you know, it was like a game of whack-a-mole. I would get one situation in my life under control and then I would have another one. And then the other one would pop back up in a different way, shape or form. So out of desperation, I thought, okay, I'm either going to turn to psychiatric medication for the third time in my life, which I really don't want to do, or I'm going to find another way to deal with this. 
And I came across paths with this shamanic healer, which has nothing to do with plant medicine, by the way. Um, A shaman is simply a go-between between the spiritual, non-physical realm and the physical realm. And so when your soul is stirring and you're having these difficulties, that's the person that you go to. And it, it has its roots in tribal communities or ancient traditions all over the so world. So how do you find one? Do I have to pay one? Yes. And what do they do? Okay. So you, <laughs> you, okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So I found this one. Um, I went to an event that she co-hosted. It was like a yoga ancestral journey type of event that was really profound for me. And I hadn't reached out to her until I got to this point of desperation. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to give this person a call. And I, I booked an appointment with her and she started taking me on these meditative journeys where I would go back to childhood and re-experience memories that maybe I wasn't even consciously aware that I had. And she would show me how the ways that I was hurt in these memories, like how, like the first memory I think I went to, I went back to Disney world and I was just a little girl and I felt super overwhelmed by all the commotion, all the people and the energy and the consumption of that experience. But it was like, my parents took me there because they were expecting me to have a good time. So I also felt this pressure to, to perform for them, right. To give them the experience they wanted. And, uh, Snow White was there and it was like, I knew she wasn't real. I knew that this whole place was, yeah, you're like, Fuck you, bitch. You ain't real. <laughs> I bet you're I bet you're getting off work stripping too for some extra money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I had this inner knowing as a spiritual being, we're all spiritual beings having a human experience that, you know, there was something not right about this experience. And when you look back at it as an adult, you think, wow, you're so lucky you got to go to Disney World. But actually being at Disney World was a trauma. And I got to go back through a meditative journey to see from my childhood self's point of view that, yeah, this this was traumatic. And so I, I can re-experience those feelings, which releases them from, from my body and from my being. And then I can reprogram the memory to make it so that something different happened instead. And And how do you reprogram the memory? Do you do that while in meditation or do you do that once you come out of meditation? While in meditation. It's all in the meditation. Yeah. And then later you come out of it and it's like, it's like months of therapy compacted into one session because now whatever the symptom of that trauma was, I no longer have. So it's pretty amazing. Um, And after a few months of doing that work, it was like I had gotten results that I had been searching years of my life to get. I had a newfound sense of inner peace. I wasn't engaging in these self-sabotaging behaviors like pushing my partner away when I really wanted them close to me or even money patterns. Like I had this one money pattern where I felt like I could never have more than enough, even though I was a stripper and whatever. It was like any time that I got a little bit of money saved up, an unexpected expense would come up with my car or something else. And I got really frustrated with it. And I was like, what's at the root of this issue? And I I went back to a childhood memory where I was at a garage sale and I was watching all of the toys that I loved being sold off one by one. And my parents were just telling me, you already have a ton of toys. You don't need these. And so they dismissed my emotion and I carried the message with me that you don't need more than enough. So that's why this money pattern was manifesting in my life. And when I healed that memory, everything changed. It was like I started viewing money differently. I started feeling more motivated to behave differently at work in ways that were more lucrative. And I actually started saving money. 
You see the difference? Oh, yeah. I need that, too. I've got a problem with money. Yeah. <laughs> a lot one. of people, money is a traumatic thing. <laughs> yeah. I actually have a problem with shopping. That's my problem. Not okay. money. It's, it's, it's shop. Yeah. I've got a problem with spending money. I mean, mm-hmm. money itself, like physically, we, we don't argue. We don't have a fight. If there's a dollar bill here, the dollar bill is not going to like yell at me or cause, you know, cause me any trauma. But what causes the trauma is how I just can't hold on to it. <laughs> right. Yeah, so, definitely. Yeah. That's a common yeah, so thing. Yeah. And it's just like how I, I, I just manifest it. There's something that I'm manifesting from my from my childhood um, or something. And I know that there is too. And yes. did, did other things come up? Like I've been told by therapists that just through my behaviors and the way that uh, a lot of my character defects come out, they're convinced that there's been more trauma that I'm blocking out. So absolutely that happens. Yeah. So things come back to you and you're like, Oh my God, that did happen. Yeah. And the thing is that the subconscious mind holds all of these things. And we're, we're constantly trying to turn to the conscious mind to, to conjure it up, right. To dig down and find those memories. But that's super ineffective because you can just get in that meditative state and ask the subconscious and the memory will come up and you can heal it and move on. So when I started after doing this work for myself and seeing all the results, uh, the shamanic healer who I was working with sort of became this mentor for me. And I started doing this work on myself, like without the shaman. And then I started doing it with others and started taking clients and eventually transitioned from being a dancer to being a healer, an intuitive healer and a coach. So now I take clients and I do this type of work with them and the transformations are incredible. It's super rewarding. Wow. And you know, right before we were um, talking, I was, first of all, you never have to sell me on meditation. Anybody that knows me, I'm like, miss me. I work in a treatment center and they're like, I'm like a broken record to them. Cause anytime they come with a problem, they're like, oh, she's just going to tell us to go meditate. She's just going <laughs> to tell us to go meditate. It's like, don't medicate, meditate. But exactly. I mean, this is a, this is a different form. I understand way, way different realm of things, but um, like I'm, I, I'm, buying this. Like I really feel it. And I had somebody do this to me, um, to a degree. Okay. The problem is, is I didn't get consistent enough. I saw, and she didn't call herself a shaman. Um, but she was very, uh, she had crystals were everywhere. She was into mysticism and everything. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like we did this like crazy breath work okay. for like an hour. Okay. Right. I mean this breath and, and, um, Things came to me like when I was driving home, I felt like I was flying. I felt so light and a lot of things changed after that one experience. And of course, being the great addict that I am, I did that. I said it was great. I'm going to do it every week and then fell back into my old patterns and didn't do it again. But you're Mm -hmm. really motivating me to – so – let's uh, say that we want you to uh, do some work on us. How, how can we find you? Yeah, absolutely. So you can book a free discovery call on my website, which is chelseacora.com. And I'm sure we'll put it in the show notes. I also have a YouTube channel where I do a lot of videos, which is great for resources around uh, alcoholism, stripping, healing from trauma, and so much more. That's my name, Chels Cora. And then I also have my own podcast, which is the Soulful Stripper Podcast. And that's Yay. available on Spotify and everywhere else. 
And then right. Instagram is just chels.cora. So we'll put all that stuff in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. We'll have it all. We'll have it all. And then, you know, if there's someone listening and they say straight, well, she's not going to give you advice on like how to like climb the pole, right? <laughs> not exactly. <laughs> but if there are strippers out there, I do have a lot of wisdom for making more money and staying sober at the club in combination with healing your trauma and connecting to your purpose that maybe is transitioning out of the club someday. That's great. And that could be any kind of work because let me tell you something, even though I work in treatment, sometimes mm-hmm. I want to leave there and I want to use seriously. So yeah. I mean, any, any kind of job, I'm sure you can, you can teach that not just for stripping for, for any kind of work that you do where you feel stressed and you feel like maybe, you know, it's hard for you to stay sober in the workplace. That'd be great to call. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. and that's just something that happens naturally as you start healing your trauma, because you start stripping away these layers of who you're not. And you get so in touch with who you are that your, your path in life becomes undeniably clear. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. th- this is such a serious subject, but you know, I'm an asshole. So <laughs> I, I gotta tell you, I took those, um, those, those pole dancing classes cause I was trying to get in shape. Yeah. And I wish I would have videotaped it. It was so bad. Like that is hard work. Like you have to be like, I'm telling you, I would, first of all, I got terrified. Like when I had to climb up and like, I couldn't hang upside down and all these chicks are like all like glamorous and they're twisting and turning and they're doing it with their heels. And I'm just like a floppy old mess. It was just so funny. God, How how did you feel when you were doing it? Um, I definitely did not feel like a goddess. I have to be honest. I felt really uh, terrible about myself. Cause I just yeah. wasn't good at it. I just, it, I didn't yeah. have it. That, that experience is a reactivation of the trauma you talked about at the beginning of this episode. <gasps> wow. When, when you're talking about, you felt different from the other kids, you, you weren't at the same level, so to speak, as they were, they were making fun of you. That emotional experience is going to be recreated in your adulthood th- throughout several different ways. And that was one of them. I am going to kill you for having to turn this into therapeutic session. I was trying to make it funny, like trying to get people to picture me like flopping around on the pole. It's both. <laughs> it can be both. No, no, but see, that just shows you what Chelsea's work is all about because that totally makes sense. That I, I have the chills. I really do because yeah, yeah it, it did. It probably now that I think about it, it did. I could see exactly what I was wearing that day when. Um, I was booed off the stage and I could remember what I was wearing when I took that class and how I felt. And it was pretty much the same feeling. It was just inadequacy. Yeah. Inadequacy. I'm not good enough. So exactly. (sighs) And it's like when you heal that trauma, you can move through experiences like that and have a totally different reaction. You know, it's like the circumstances might be the same, but your experience is going to be like, I'm having fun. And actually I really connected with these other women. They were really supportive and it was all a learning experience. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Like yeah, totally mm-hmm. yeah. I, well, I still, when I hear that Kesha song that we used to dance to at the class, I just want to throw, I just want to die. I can't listen to Kesha anymore. It's yeah. traumatic. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so Kesha <laughs> equals trauma. So I mean, yeah. Yeah. And that, that's going to be our next, um, episode is like what to do about triggers when you're, when your uh, trauma is triggered, but actually you won't have to worry about that. Chels mm-hmm. will, cure you of it. Absolutely. And I could sit here literally and talk to you all day. I mean, I just like want, I want to invite you over. I want us to hang out with my dogs and have coffee and just, yes. Oh my God. (laughs) Totally bring your crystals and we'll just hang out and be best friends and have a crystal party. 
Let's do it. Yeah, that's, I'm definitely gonna have you back on. We're gonna definitely have you back on. You're such an amazing guest and you're just such a awesome, awesome chick, man. I love it when I meet cool chicks. Thank you so much for coming on Sober Exposure. I am Jennifer Wild. Thanks for joining us. All right.